Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode of New Books in History, a podcast channel with the New Books Network. I'm one of the channel's hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very excited today to be bringing to you both of the authors of the book, The Making of the Bible, From First Fragments to Sacred Scripture, published by Harvard University Press in 2022. The book brings together two renowned scholars um, of the Bible to discuss how these documents, in fact, as they argue, uh, Bibles should not be thought of as one thing, but there are in fact many different kinds of Bibles, um, how we ended up with these documents, how, how this all came together. Um, and they argue that it was a result of diverse developments that unfolded over many, many centuries. And the book uh, goes through these progressions, um, debates, um, all sorts of things to explain the books that we may know today in Judaism, in Christianity, um, and understand where they came from. So I'm very excited to welcome Dr. Conrad Schmid and Dr. Jens Schreuter to the podcast. Hello, Miranda. Hello. So I was hoping to ask you both to first start us off with how did you come together to write this book? Go ahead, Jens. Um, uh, one thing is uh, that we know each other already for a long time and we have a close uh, friendship and we uh, also have a, a productive um, partnership uh, working in uh, working together in our fields. So in uh, biblical scholarship, uh, Conrad from the Old Testament perspective and I'm from the New Testament perspective. And the idea of a book was uh, to bring together our two uh, fields of um, Old Testament studies and New Testament studies. And uh, we were surprised how good that worked and uh, how productive it was. And another important finding during our work was uh, that there is no such a book that would bring these uh, different uh, findings uh, together that uh, we are related to the history of the Bible and the early reception of the Bible. So it's quite important to look at the evidence of uh, the different books of the Bible and how they became in the end one book in Christianity and another book in Judaism. And uh, what we did is to um, um, uh, depict these uh, developments and uh, what is quite important for our perspective is that uh, we looked at the history of the Jewish and the Christian Bible as uh, they developed in the, over a long period and um, in uh, the time of early Christianity, Judaism and uh, the emerging uh, Christianity also were in contact and in uh, in opposition in a contract uh, in contact with each other and in opposition to each other and that is 
usually not uh, included in the uh, history of uh, the Christian Bible. And I think one can add that probably also our original German publisher had a fair share in uh, the genesis and the production of this book. We first actually thought of writing a book about the canon history of the Bible. So how specifically somehow this list of books in the Hebrew Bible and in the New T uh, Testament came about. Uh, and we uh, were in contact with C.H. Uh, Beck, which is one of the major publishers in the German uh, scientific uh, landscape. And uh, our lector, he suggested, why don't you somehow treat uh, the whole of the formation of the biblical literature, not just somehow the aspect how this literature became canonical, which is a process that somehow spans uh, the time from the third uh, century before our era to uh, the second century of the common era. Uh, why don't you uh, describe the genesis of the biblical books as a whole, how this library uh, came about. And uh, it was not too difficult to win us over for this uh, comprehensive idea. This also meant that we uh, targeted the book towards a little bit a broader audience than just our uh, fellow scholars, uh, or persons in scholarship, but that we really somehow wanted to uh, reach out to a broader public. And I think this has worked out quite well. The German original of the book uh, sold very well, and uh, up to now it has been translated into French, and now it's also uh, available in English, which is a great joy for us. Well, I would certainly say as uh, an academic, but one definitely not in the field of biblical studies, that I'm very glad that your editor convinced you to have a wider lens. Um, and certainly as someone interested in history generally, this was absolutely fascinating. Um, and I wanted to pick up on something for our next question that Jens mentioned a minute ago, which is this idea of the dialogue and in some ways competition between Judaism and early Christianity. So I was wondering if one or both of you could explain for us why you argue in the book that Judaism's specific form now, rabbinic Judaism, was developed in dialogue and competition with early Christianity. One important aspect of that topic is that usually today um, scholars would argue that uh, Christianity grew out of Judaism and that uh, in the first and second and even in the third century, Christianity was very closely embedded into uh, ancient Judaism. And that is uh, correct, of course. So there are many important uh, historical developments in Judaism of uh, Hellenistic Roman times. So roughly from the third century BCE to the first century CE. And uh, these developments influenced uh, Christianity very much. So that is one side of the coin so that Christianity is rooted in Judaism and that it is not uh, possible to imagine how Christianity could um, 
originate or, or could uh, could be shaped without uh, these Jewish uh, scriptures and these Jewish writings. But on the other hand, it is also true that uh, at the end of the first and then in the second and third and even in the fourth century, Judaism got its specific form, what we call today rabbinic Judaism. So a form of Judaism that concentrated on the Hebrew writings and not on the Greek ones, and that developed in a specific way, concentrating on the Torah, so on, on the law in a specific way, and, uh, and, and other uh, aspects of ancient Judaism. And, and these specific developments uh, um, were in close contact and in competition with Christianity. So we cannot, uh, so we, we cannot um, describe uh, this uh, um, formation of uh, early Judaism without looking at uh, Christianity as well. So it is a, it's a mutual influence and uh, mutual um, competition also that uh, ended up with uh, two ways of uh, um, expressing faith in, in the one God. And uh, of course, Christianity developed its specific way of faith in the one God by adding also the confession to Jesus Christ. And uh, Judaism developed its own way of uh, um, faith in the one God. So we have a development uh, of uh, two ways, rooting in the same writings, rooting in the same traditions, but then developing roughly in the first to the fourth century of a common era in uh, dialogue, competition, and conflict with each other. Yeah, maybe it's helpful to uh, uh, ask who is the mother and who is the daughter among Judaism and Christianity. And as Jens said, said I think uh, both options uh, of a sequence are uh, pro uh, probably justified. In a basic historical sense, of course, Judaism is the mother of Christianity, but uh, somehow in interaction with Judaism and or between Judaism and Christianity, uh, Judaism actually as the predecessor religion also uh, found a specific shape uh, that can be uh, described uh, to a certain extent as uh, somehow originating uh, as a daughter religion from Christianity as the mother uh, religion. So I think it really works both ways. And this is something that we try to describe in our book. And I think it's really fascinating, this idea of the mother and the daughter and how they come out from each other. So as a follow up from that question, given that we might be very used to the idea that Christianity comes from Judaism, could you give us an example, perhaps of the other side of it? How what a particular aspect of Judaism that comes out of it that we might see from this dialogue or competition? I think this is a very hotly debated and also intensely researched uh, field and scholars like Israel Yuval and Peter Schaeffer have contributed significantly to that. Uh, I think for me, one of the uh, good examples somehow to illustrate 
how Judaism uh, shaped specific religious concepts that it took up from Christianity is, for example, the Pesach uh, Haggadah. So this focus on food, on eating, uh, that uh, nowadays also shapes how in Judaism uh, Pesach is being celebrated. I think that this specific focus has something to do uh, with the centrality of uh, the Lord's Supper, of the Eucharist in the Christian uh, tradition, that somehow uh, Judaism, emerging Judaism thought, yes, we need to have, we need to develop something uh, similar. And there, uh, I think this was really a force that came out of Christianity that uh, put so much emphasis on this specific ritual. Uh, another uh, example would be the form of the Jewish Bible. So that is also a reaction to the understanding of the prophetic writings in early Christianity. So in Christianity, the prophets were very important as witnesses for, the, for Jesus Christ. And um, they took up, so early Christian writings and traditions took up uh, apocalyptic ideas, so ideas of Jewish apocalypticism, so that were developed in Jewish writings from the 3rd century BCE to the 1st century CE. And uh, rabbinic Judaism uh, were, was very hesitant to adopt these uh, apocalyptic ideas And they put the Torah in the center and they understood the prophets as interpreters of the Torah. And that is quite an under, a different understanding of the prophetic writings than we have it in uh, Christian development, uh, in the Christian Bible, and also in uh, Christian apocalyptic writings. So, and here you can see in the formation of the Christian tradition vis-a-vis -vis the Jewish tradition and also the formation of the Jewish Bible in contrast to the Christian Bible that uh, the, the prophetic and apocalyptic tradition was uh, interpreted in very different ways. Brilliant examples. Thank you for sharing them. Staying on the theme of sort of two things going together and going back to your very beginning, the introduction of each of your specialisms, another argument that you make early on in the book was that the phrasing, calling it the Old Testament and the New Testament, juxtaposes not just the two books of the Christian Bible, but also, as you argue, two covenants. Can you explain what you mean by that? So the original um, meaning of the word uh, testament, uh, so in, in uh, Greek it's uh, diatheke and in Hebrew it's uh, berit, and the original meaning of that term is uh, covenant. So it hasn't to do anything with a book originally. And uh, in this way, it was uh, used in the Jewish writings and also in early Christian writings. If, uh, for example, Paul uses the term uh, diatheke, then uh, he speaks about the first covenant or the covenant uh, of God with his people, Israel. And uh, when he speaks of a new covenant, also this term is already there in, in Jewish writings, 
but uh, now it gains a new meaning, namely uh, the covenant that God made with the believers in Jesus Christ. So, and uh, that that implies that the term testament in the early times didn't have anything to do with with a book, but it was an expression for the covenant, the covenant of God with Israel and the covenant of God with the believers in Jesus Christ. And uh, the distinction of an old and a new testament or an old and a new covenant is, of course, uh, only meaningful from a Christian perspective. It doesn't make any sense from a Jewish perspective. They have their Bible and they have the faith in the one God, but they don't have uh, an Old Testament opposed to a New Testament. I think it's absolutely crucial to uh, yeah to uh, remind of the fact that the first Christians they didn't have a New Testament. The only Holy Scriptures that they read that they had. This was uh, the Hebrew Bible, but they interpreted these scriptures in a specific perspective. And the New Testament only uh, developed over the first two centuries. There were first the letters of Paul, then uh, the Gospels uh, followed. But uh, it's really important to see that the first generations of Christians, and of course also Jesus and Paul, uh, they had nothing else to read than what we know as the uh, Hebrew Bible. So the New Testament is actually just a literary uh, explanation of this specific hermeneutic perspective that the first Christians had towards these uh, writings that uh, are nowadays still the Jewish Bible. But I think it's, it's, it's really important uh, to see that the Bible of the early Christians was not the Old and the New Testament, but it was what later then was called the Old Testament. The terminology uh, first uh, pops up with Melito uh, from Sardis at the end of the second century CE. Uh, he uses the term Old Testament for the first time for a book, namely for the Jewish writings. And that uh, implies that there is also a New Testament. But when if Christians speak, if Christians speak in the second century of a New Testament, they do not mean a book because there was no book that was called New Testament. So in, in the first century, for example, Paul and, and other authors uh, in the first century, they would always speak of the scripture or the Holy Scripture or the Holy Scriptures. So the Greek term is graphe or hagia graphe. And that is sometimes used in the New Testament uh, and is quoted, of course, scripture says. And for Paul and the other authors, it's uh, absolutely clear that scripture means the authoritative Jewish writings. So there's no need to explain what scripture is. So it's uh, the Torah and the prophets and the Psalms uh, and so on. And uh, that this term, testament, is used for books 
That is only a later development. As Conrad said, it started at the end of the second century with using the term Old Testament for a book or for writings. And then the distinction of uh, an Old Testament and a New Testament um, developed out of this uh, usage. And the term Bible is even later. Bible comes from the Greek term Bibloi, and uh, this is attested from the fourth century onward. And literally, Bible actually means books in the plural, which is a very adequate uh, designation for the Bible, because the book is rather a library uh, than just uh, one book. In uh, Judaism, there is actually not a really fixed terminology, what the Christians call Old Testament and what is the Hebrew or uh, the Jewish Bible. Ancient designations for that text corpus are simply Mikra or Mikraot, which means scripture or scriptures. The common term uh, that is also often used in uh, modern Judaism, Tenach, which is an acronym for Torah, Nevi'im and Ketuvim. These are the three parts of the Hebrew Bible, uh, law, prophets and uh, writings. This acronym uh, only uh, is attested from the Middle Ages on, so this is not really an ancient uh, usage uh, or an ancient uh, designation for the corpus of the Hebrew Bible. And one could perhaps also add that the term canon, it's a Christian term. It's not appropriate for the Jewish Bible or for the interpretation of the Jewish Bible until today. So it, it's not uh, very useful in, in the Jewish tradition. And in the Christian tradition, the term canon was applied to books only in the fourth century. So not before. So in, in the fourth century, um, Christian theologians started to speak of a canon of books, meaning a fixed number of books. And before the fourth century, the term canon was uh, used for regulations of a church, so for ethical or dogmatic regulations, but not for books. So that was uh, a new um, usage of that term when it was applied to a certain number of uh, books that were regarded as uh, authoritative writings. And so this gives us a fabulous idea of both why the book, your book is very important um, to illuminate all of this and the wonderful amounts of detail and honestly questions that you answer in the book. So thank you for explaining those things. I think they give us a really good foundation for my next few questions which definitely do not cover all of the things in the actual book, um, but are sort of a whistle-stop tour of some of the particular points um, that jumped out that I thought might be interesting for our audience. So with the caveat that the next series of questions definitely do not cover everything that is in the book, um, I'd like to sort of move chronologically and first ask about something that was surprising to me, which was the significant gap that you show between the content of the books in the Bible about David and Solomon versus the archaeological evidence 
about what was happening when those events are being described. And so what does that gap um, tell you, tell us, about the purpose of these books about David and Solomon? Yeah, this is a really interesting feature when one reads the books of Samuel and Kings, but also the books of Chronicles. The kingdom of David and uh, Solomon, they are really described in the most... uh, luxurious terms and this is a golden age of the first two kings of Israel. Uh, This kingdom is described really in abundant terms and uh, if we look at what archaeology found out about the era, the time of David and Solomon, this is really a mismatch to what we seem to learn Uh, from the Bible. Archaeology, which has made dramatic progresses in the past few decades, shows that at the time of David and Solomon, this is the 10th uh, century BCE, that at this time there was no monumental architecture in Judah. Jerusalem seems to have been still a relatively small uh, city, and David and uh, Solomon probably were rather uh, chiefs than really kings. Their uh, kingdom was more of a chiefdom. So uh, it seems that the Bible is really exaggerating with regard how they present uh, this reign of David and Solomon. Now, what does this mean? I think that we can see here that the Bible often uses mythical structures in order uh, to explain what it wants to explain. The Bible is, of course, interested in uh, presenting an ideal shape of how Israel and Judah should be organized politically or sociologically, uh, sociologically. And I think in order to do that, the biblical authors projected their fantasies, their ideas, their uh, concept of how an ideal monarchy should look like as the political system for Israel and Judah. They projected this back into the time of David and Solomon. David and Solomon are clearly historical figures. We know this uh, without any doubt, particularly from an inscription uh, that was found uh, unearthed in 1993, the so-called Tildan inscription, which mentions the house of David, and this inscription can be dated to the 9th century uh, BCE. So uh, David is, or the house, the dynasty of David is here in view, is certainly attested at the time. So they were historical figures, but uh, it's not historical how the Bible uh, depicts uh, their uh, reign. This is something that is really much more of uh, something that the Bible longs for, that the Bible thinks should have been uh, the case. And it's often in religious literature that things that uh, authors hope for, 
that they project this back to the past in order to see or in order to argue and to claim as it was before, it will be accordingly also in the future. This this seems to be uh, the major logic behind this uh, construction of a golden age that is centered around the figures of David and Solomon. Thank you for explaining that mismatch. Um, I think that explanation makes a lot of sense, uh, but it's definitely something that probably I'm not the only one surprised by. Um, So continuing our very quick tour through the massive amount of information you cover, um, how does Deuteronomy build on Near Eastern legal tradition? And what can we add to our understanding of Deuteronomy by understanding this context? Yes, the book of Deuteronomy, the fifth book of the Torah, has really a very interesting uh, shape. We know today, uh, particularly also to epigraphical finding, that Deuteronomy is modeled upon a Neo-Assyrian vassal treaty. The Neo-Assyrian Empire was probably the first empire in world history that really deserves this name. The Neo-Assyrians between the 9th and the 7th century BCE, they tried and also achieved to get world dominion and world of course means the ancient world in the eastern Mediterranean uh, and in Mesopotamia. Uh, They uh, managed to establish an empire uh, in the 8th, 7th century BCE. And this empire was secured not only by military power, but uh, the Assyrians also imposed treaties upon the subdued uh, nations and kings. And these treaties were of the content that the kings, the vassal kings, the subdued kings, uh, they were obliged to be completely loyal to the Assyrian great uh, king. And the book of Deuteronomy apparently knows of these treaties. And now uh, the the authors of the book of Deuteronomy took up this concept of vassal treaties, but they completely reformulated it. Uh, They subversively received it and they said, yes, we, the people of Israel, we also are loyal, completely loyal, but not to the Assyrian great king, but we are loyal uh, to our God. And these are probably the very beginnings of the development towards a monotheism, a monotheistic structure of the ancient Israelite uh, religion, a monotheistic religion that is uh, enforced by certain laws. And in the uh, also in this era, this idea of divine laws is probably developed for the first time uh, in human intellectual history. Deuteronomy, probably with this uh, very critical concept towards the Assyrians, belongs or must belong uh, towards the end of the Assyrian Empire, uh, 
scholarship usually thinks that it belongs to the end of the 7th century uh, BC because the Assyrians probably were already quite uh, weak. Otherwise, uh, it wouldn't have been possible in Jerusalem and in ancient uh, Judah to formulate such a concept that is so critical uh, of the uh, Assyrian dominion. Amazing. Um, I'm just learning a lot by listening, uh, despite having already obviously read the book. Um, So thinking about... The fact that, as you said at the beginning, that the Bible, whether you think about the Torah, whether you think about the Tanakh, whether you think about the Christian Bible, is not actually one book. It's a collection of texts that, as you show throughout the book, are not inevitably all of those things included the way that they are. They're not inevitably in that order. Um, And there's quite a few different types of writing in these texts including exegesis within the Bible itself. So I was wondering if you could talk to us a little bit about the significance of this interbiblical exegesis. Why do we have it? And why is it important for the endurance of this otherwise seemingly strange collection of writings? This, uh, Conrad, do you want to? No, no, go ahead, please. I'll, I, I can add. Okay. So uh, inner biblical um, exegesis is a very interesting phenomenon. So we uh, can see that uh, from a very early uh, point onwards, uh, writings that were regarded as uh, important, as uh, influential for the Jewish people were interpreted, for example, by re-narrating the story. An early example is uh, the book of Chronicles. So we have it in the Bible itself. The book, the books, uh, the two books of Chronicles, re-narrate uh, the history of Israel from a different perspective than the books of uh, Samuel and Kings. And uh, then we have a- a other examples of that as well in uh, Jewish tradition. For example, the so-called books of Jubilees that re-narrates the first book of the Bible, so the book of Genesis, and the beginning of the second book, so the uh, beginning of uh, the book of Exodus. So here we have uh, re-narration. Today it is often called uh, the rewritten Bible. And uh, it shows that uh, certain stories and certain books were regarded as important for the self-understanding of the people of Israel. And therefore, they did not only preserve books, but they also interpreted them. And uh, another way of this uh, interpretation, so of interpreting uh, these books, is the translation. So we have an early translation of the Torah, and then also of the other Hebrew books, that is the so-called Septuagint. It's a Jewish translation that started in the third century BCE with the Torah. So the Torah was the first part that was interpreted and then the other biblical books followed. And uh, this uh, Greek translation of uh, the Hebrew texts is also a, a way of interpreting them. So the translations of these different books are different. So they were done by different translators. 
And some of them followed their own understanding of these books very clearly. So one can see in comparing the Hebrew and the Greek text, texts how they interpreted them to make them um, useful for a new situation that was the situation in the Greek-speaking world. So when Jews lived in, in the Greek-speaking world and also in a new cultural and social and political context, in this case, especially in Alexandria, in, in uh, Egypt, where this uh, Greek translation of uh, the Bible uh, was, uh, was done. And uh, an important example in the Septuagint is that there were additions, or there are some uh, traditions, uh, additions, some additions to the books of uh, Daniel and of Esther. So there are Greek parts of these uh, books that uh, only exist in the Septuagint, but not in the uh, Hebrew uh, original. And uh, to mention just um, a third way of uh, interpretation is uh, writing commentaries. So, and also this uh, tradition begins in Judaism. So in Qumran, we have uh, some uh, writings that interpret biblical books. For example, the book of Genesis or the book of a prophet Habakkuk. We have uh, the so-called Pesha tradition. So. Pesha means uh, interpretation. And uh, we have uh, Jewish writings that are interpretations of other books. And then we have that in the Greek tradition as well with uh, Jewish philosopher Philo of Alexandria, who lived in the first century BCE to the first century CE. So that is a very rich um, um, amount of uh, interpretation of books, of Jewish books that were regarded as important. And by translating them, by re-narrating them, by commenting on them, they were, uh, they, uh, they were made um, um, important or that shows that they were regarded as uh, important for the Jewish people. Yeah, Miranda, you were specifically also asking about the significance of in, inner biblical exegesis for the endurance of the text. I think this is a very elementary uh, point that I simply would uh, like to highlight. We only have the Bible as copies of copies of copies of copies of copies. The oldest extant Hebrew Bible is a medieval manuscript from the uh, year 1008 CE. And I think if the biblical text wouldn't have been considered as worthy of interpretation, of, uh, of uh, being copied, of always uh, being uh, updated, then we wouldn't have the Bible uh, today. I think it's also important to, uh, uh, to keep in mind the material aspects of how the biblical text uh, texts were transmitted in antiquity, probably in biblical times, 
mostly also uh, the first millennium BCE, uh, biblical texts uh, existed in a very, very small quantity. We can even reckon that up to the Hellenistic time, up to the 3rd century BCE, maybe biblical texts just existed in single copies, the book of Genesis or parts of Genesis, uh, collections of Psalms, of prophetic uh, sayings. And I think that describes the tradence of these biblical texts when they copied the text. They had to copy them because an ancient scroll uh, under usual circumstances is only able to survive uh, physically uh, for about 200 years, uh, 300 years, then it rots away. If they uh, copied uh, these texts, they did not only take care of the text itself, of the wording, but they also took care of the meaning of the text. They somehow applied the text to themselves, and this led to what we nowadays identify as inner biblical exegesis, which simply is a process of updating, commenting, and which also makes the biblical text so rich and so interesting. So one of the most interesting, to me at least, pieces that you talk about um, is the book of Job, because you argue that the book of Job um, adds something pretty unique to the text and in fact clarifies the Bible's presentation as a discursive theological work. Um, I'm glad that you went into a good amount of detail on this particular argument in the book um, because I thought it was really interesting. So I was wondering if you could share an overview of it with our audience now. Yeah, the book of Job, this is really a masterpiece within the Bible. I would say this is really world uh, literature that found its way into uh, the Bible. And at the same time, it's also one of the most critical texts in the Bible with regard to its uh, theology. I think the book of Job is probably the most intellectual book of the Hebrew Bible. I think at first sight, uh, one could think that the book of Job is about the question why just people, good people like Job himself, why they have to suffer in this world. It's a big tractate about this uh, problem of the suffering of just a person. And I think this is not wrong, but uh, I also think there is a deeper dimension to uh, the book of Job. I think the book of Job also deals in a very deep way uh, with the very basic question, how can we even talk about God? How can we uh, conceptualize the idea of God? And I think in the end, the book of God, uh, the book of Job actually denies uh, the possibilities for humans to discover the plans of God and to understand how and why he acts the way he acts. I think the book of Job argues God is God and the humans are humans and uh, it's very, very difficult uh, 
even impossible for humans to figure out uh, what actually the divine logic is when we look uh, at what happens in the world. God is free to do what he does, and uh, his motives can be, this is what the book of Job presents us, uh, his motives can be even as absurd as this, uh, the book of Job explains, uh, if you somehow want to uh, get a simple answer why Job has to suffer. He is simply the the object of a heavenly test, of a test that God and Satan uh, yeah, enable in order to see whether Job is only a pious person because uh, his life is so good, because he is so wealthy, or uh, whether uh, he is a pious person and uh, sticks to God uh, out of of, uh, of of deeper motives. So I think the book of Job is probably uh, one uh, piece of literature in the Hebrew Bible that uh, that is critical about two simplistic theologies like do good things, then you will be treated well also by others, or God will help uh, anyone in uh, every situation. The book of Job says, no, there is a deep gap between what we humans might expect from God and what God is uh, really doing. But in the end, I think there is also the option uh, for uh, readers of the book of Job uh, really somehow to commit themselves to God because uh, whatever somehow goes wrong in the life with Job, he loses everything. He is at the very end of the book, he is restored. Some readers think this is a little bit of pity, so this makes the the book shallow it's it's a bit cheap this restoration but maybe it's just one option for a particular kind of readers that uh, were very interested in a happy end but it doesn't take away the overall significance and the the worth the theological weight of this book of job that i am very fascinated by Thank you for explaining that to us. Um, I think it is a really interesting piece. Um, and again, moving on, I'm definitely not covering everything. Uh, you'd have to read the whole book for that. Um, I'm trying to ask the interesting questions that I can in this time. Um, how do the findings, if we think back again to the interplay between the texts and the archaeology and the historiography, how do the findings from Qumran help us understand how certain texts and certain groups became authorized, legitimized in Judaism during the Hellenistic Roman period that we've already sort of touched on a bit as being a time of a lot of change. So how does this context from this particular era help us understand what we have now better? So the, the writings uh, from Qumran are very important for our standing, our understanding of the biblical canon. Of course, the, the, the Jewish Bible, not not the Christian Bible, but uh, the Jewish Bible. And uh, perhaps one should uh, begin by uh, explaining that uh, in the 40s and 50s of the 20th century, many manuscripts were discovered 
at Qumran and also at uh, some other places close to the Dead Sea. And uh, among them were fragments or even almost complete uh, scrolls from almost all biblical books. Almost all biblical books uh, are attested at uh, Qumran and also at some uh, other places. Most of these manuscripts are in Hebrew and Aramaic. Some of them are also in Greek, but only a few are in Greek. Most of them are in, in Hebrew and um, uh, Aramaic. And what is interesting is that uh, there are also other books that were apparently read and interpreted by the community that lived in Qumran or by the communities so that was either one or perhaps also some uh, Jewish groups uh, that lived one after the other uh, at this um, place, Qumran, where the manuscripts were discovered in the caves nearby. So, and uh, we have these uh, writing, we have these biblical texts, biblical manuscripts on the one hand, and we have texts that refer to the life and the self-understanding of this group or these groups. And with regard to the biblical manuscripts, it is uh, interesting that among them are not only those which are now in the Jewish Bible and in the Old Testament of the Christian Bible, so it's only Jewish writing, so there's not any Christian text uh, in uh, Qumran, only Jewish texts, but uh, not only those who are uh, only those texts that are now in the Jewish Bible and in the Old Testament of the Christian Bible, but also some other books, for example, the Book of Jubilees or the Book of Enoch or books of Enoch that were also regarded as important. And this is uh, interesting because uh, it shows that the canon, so to speak, if you want to use that term, the canon was not closed at that time. So we have no fixed number of book, books that were regarded as uh, authoritative, but uh, we have a kernel of uh, uh, authoritative writings, uh, the Torah and the prophets and the Psalms, but there were many other books that uh, uh, were regarded by some Jewish groups as important and by others not. What is also interesting is that, there, that we have different textual versions. A good example is the book of Jeremiah that exists in a longer and a shorter version. The longer version is the Hebrew, in the Hebrew Bible, the shorter version is in the Septuagint, so in, in the Greek translation. And in Qumran, we have both of these versions side by side. Both of them are attested. So there was apparently not one authoritative version of the book of Jeremiah. A similar example is the Pentateuch. So the books of the Torah, the five books of the Torah, we have some fragments of these book, books. They are called in scholarship today, reworked Pentateuch. And these fragments also have... Um, some uh, um, differences to the text that we have in our Bibles now. 
And uh, another example would be the book of Psalms. So there are different uh, manuscripts of the Psalms uh, that show that the book of Psalms uh, uh, had different orders of the Psalms, could, could have different orders uh, of the Psalms. So what is uh, interesting uh, with these Qumran findings is that uh, our view of the Jewish Bible is uh, quite uh, revised or has changed by these findings. We know that uh, at this time, so and that was uh, also the time when Christianity originated. So at this time in Judaism comes very close to the beginnings of Christianity. There was no fixed number, no fixed order, and no fixed text of the Jewish Bible. And this is a situation that Christianity found when Christianity originated. They had to deal with this um, situation of uh, different Jewish writings that were regarded as authoritative or a bit less authoritative or even not uh, authoritative. And uh, a last point, what is very interesting is that the most interpreted, the most quoted writings in Qumran are the books of Deuteronomy and Psalms and the prophet Isaiah. And these are exactly the writings that are quoted most often also in the New Testament. So that is a quite interesting coincidence. And it shows that these books were regarded as uh, very important by the Qumran community and also by the early Christians. Thank you for explaining all of that. Um, I think that was, again, something that we, some of us may have heard of, um, but understanding the full implications of it was really useful. Um, and so staying on this idea of kind of what gets put in and what doesn't, um, you raise a question that I admit I had never thought of, uh, which is, why are there four Gospels? Why four? Why not more than four? Why those four? I realize I've just thrown a bunch of questions at you, but if you could briefly explain to us first why we have four Gospels and why those four Gospels, that would be great. Yeah, that is uh, quite an interesting uh, question. And uh, we have uh, at the end of the second century, the first um, Christian theologian who gives a reason why the church has to have four gospels. And this is Ironius. He was a bishop, an early bishop, and he deals with that very question. Why are there four gospels? And he says there are four directions of the wind and four pillars of the earth. And he gives some examples for the number four. But this is, of course, a later interpretation of a fact that was already established. So that means that at the end of the century, there was already a collection of four gospels. And these uh, Christian authors of the second half of the second century knew that there were more gospels and they quote also from other gospels. So Irenaeus knows that there were more gospels and also Clement of Alexandria and other early Christian theologians knew that there were not only these four Gospels, but also, for example, the Gospel of Thomas 
or the Gospel of Mary, or the Gospel of the Egyptians, uh, the Gospel of the Hebrews, and there were many other Gospels, what we call today apocryphal Gospels. And so it is not so easy to explain why the church should have exactly four Gospels. So it's a very interesting uh, quotation from the early uh, third century theologian origin. Uh, he says, uh, the church has four gospels, the heresy has many. That's an interesting uh, quotation because it would be much more convincing if the church would have only one gospel or two, but not four. And the reason for these four gospels apparently is that they originated quite early. So still in the first century, perhaps between 70 and 100, so in the last three decades of the first century, that they were used by many communities, Christian communities, that they were accepted by many communities, and that they were in agreement with what was regarded as the basic content of Christian faith. And in the course of the second and the third century, it had, it has to, uh, uh, or it was necessary to debate about the basic content and the basic confession of uh, Christianity. And in this context, the early creeds, so the apostolic creed and some other creeds uh, originated. And these creeds were in agreement with the accepted writings and the other way around. The accepted, accepted writings should be in agreement with these uh, early creeds. And this is a process in that a distinction between accepted and disputed and rejected writings emerged. So this was uh, the first uh, categorization in the second and third century. So there were accepted writings, accepted by early theologians and by Christian communities. Some of them were disputed, and some of these disputed writings ended up in the New Testament, and some did not. For example, the Apocalypse of John, so the Revelation of John, was disputed, and eventually it became part of the New Testament. But another Apocalypse, the Apocalypse of Peter, was also widespread and read in early Christianity, but eventually it was not became did not become part of the New Testament. So we, we have here um, uh, a gray zone, so to speak, of writings that were disputed, and we have also a third category of rejected writings. And with regard to the Gospels, it was uh, obviously the case that these four were regarded as the basic and authoritative and reliable witness of Jesus's life and death and resurrection. And uh, the other gospels were produced later and were, they were used by Christian groups that were in competition with uh, early Christian communities and with other, uh, uh, with other communities and with early Christian theologians. And so uh, in the end, it was, uh, it was not a clear cut distinction, but it was a development 
that uh, ended up with uh, a four gospel collection as the reliable witness of the church on the one hand and other gospels that were regarded as uh, heretical or apocryphal gospels uh, on the other. In my view, uh, in theological terms, uh, one thing uh, I really find fascinating is that the Bible with uh, these four Gospels somehow includes offense against its own fundamentalistic interpretation. There are several elements in the Bible itself somehow that preclude a strict, literal and fundamentalistic reading of the Bible. So the four Gospels, I think, is one element that shows that apparently early Christians somehow uh, were uh, yeah, fascinated by a multi perspectivic way of perceiving the figure of Jesus Christ. Another element in the Bible, especially in the Christian Bible, is uh, that uh, never in the history of the Bible there was a clear, defined relationship between Old, uh, Old and New Testament. The Old Testament was never subordinated uh, to the New Testament and the New Testament was never subordinated to the Old Testament but this was always kept in a in a delicate balance which I find a very very wise decision of the transmission process and maybe a third element that would uh, one could uh, mention here is what Jens explained beforehand with the writings of Qumran uh, if we look at the transmission of the biblical text in the 2nd and the 1st century BCE as the textual witnesses from Qumran show it we can see that the The, the specific letters of the biblical text were not yet fixed. The books of the Hebrew Bible were finished, but they existed side by side in a, in a slight variety of their orthography, of their wording. And it was only after the catastrophe of 70 CE that only one strand of the textual transmission, the Pharisaic rabbinic strand, somehow survived. But beforehand, uh, there was no clear definition what actually uh, the very, very uh, definite and specific wording of the Bible. So I think this is something that is also uh, relevant for a, uh, yeah, for an adequate perception of the Bible in the 21st century. Yeah, perhaps one could uh, just add to this that uh, these developments, what, what uh, Konrad has just mentioned, and also the four Gospels. So it was, of course, known to, to the early theologians that there were differences between the Gospels. And they discussed especially the differences between the Gospel of John on the one hand and the other three Gospels on the other. So there are many differences. And that was, of course, known. So uh, they were aware of that, that uh, there, there were differences um, uh, between the biblical books. And also the balanced relationship between the Old and the New Testament in the Christian Bible. All that shows that uh, the Bibles are not a testimony of unity, but of diversity. And that was a conscious uh, way of developing this uh, tradition. So it was not uh, 
dogmatic decision to have only a unified uh, book, but uh, it was uh, development or um, multiplicity of developments leading to this collection or these, these collections, uh, one could say, and these collections are by themselves uh, testimony of uh, multiplicity or uh, diversity. I think that that brings us really nicely to kind of, in some ways, sum up a lot of the key elements of the book. So I'll move on to my penultimate question, which I ask everyone, um, because often when we write these books, particularly when they go into such detail, there are often aspects that as readers are surprising, but as the people writing them, you're much, much closer to the information and what sort of pops out at you might be different. Um, and I think it's always really interesting to hear a bit about the research process. So if I could ask each of you, what was something particularly surprising that you discovered in the process of writing this book? It could be something big, small, something that did make it into the final version, something that didn't. What would your answer be? Yeah, maybe I can start with a very formal aspect of uh, our collaboration. I think this is the experience of every academic that if you do collaborative work, if you have to work on a text uh, as a group of two, three or four persons, if you would write your text alone in one hour, if you are two persons, you need will need two hours. If you're three persons, you will need three hours because you have to accommodate all these different perspectives of uh, the people that are included in uh, that group and that are committed to that project. And for me, a very surprising element was how, uh, yeah, how speedy and how swiftly our collaboration went on and how easily we actually were able to uh, produce this book. Of course, uh, one uh, factor that was quite important uh, for uh, the progress of our book was that we could uh, divide many chapters uh, quite easily among ourselves. So the Hebrew Bible chapters uh, first went to me and the New Testament chapters first went to Jens. But of course, uh, everyone read everything, uh, but uh, it was very easy somehow to get along and to uh, to produce a book that is not just uh, the edition of its part, but a little bit more than that. This was something that surprised me, I have to admit. What a great surprise. Yeah, for me, uh, it was uh, surprising how smoothly it went to bring our different uh, perspectives, uh, our different expertise uh, together and how nicely we could uh, organize the book. So, and uh, describe uh, historical development from the earliest uh, stages through the developments in Judaism of the Persian and Hellenistic Roman period up to the first centuries of the common era. So that was uh, for me a, a very uh, nice and uh, surprising uh, experience 
that from the very beginning it was uh, a very good a very uh, good cooperation and uh, um, in, in, in personal uh, terms, but uh, also with regard to the theme uh, of the book that it went very well to uh, work on these uh, different uh, topics and bring them together and uh, make a, a coherent book uh, out of that. So that was a very, very good way of um, uh, writing the book. Amazing. Well, thank you both for sharing that, I think. Um, it is quite, it's good to hear that you managed to put all of these things together in a way that not only works for the readers, but was it not a horrible process for either of you to go through either? Um, and to move then to my last question, which does always seem a bit mean to ask, given that, of course, you wrote this book in German, it's now been translated into two languages, it's only just come out in English, and yet what I'm going to ask you is my final question. What are you working on now or next? Yes, it probably won't come as a surprise, given our last answers, that there will be a next project. I think it could uh, have very well been the case that after somehow uh, teaming up for writing such a book, uh, yes, such a pair of authors would decide this was a good experience, but uh, now uh, let's leave it uh, as it is, but uh, actually it was really the success of this book that overwhelmed us and that also encouraged us uh, to think of a follow-up project. We are now in the very early stages and phases of conceptualizing a possible follow-up project. We are thinking currently of uh, writing a book about the, uh, a global history of the Bible's cultural impact on different civilizations and also different fields of uh, civilization. We do not want simply somehow to cover different samples of biblical texts that somehow were received in art, literature, uh, and so on. But we want to uh, discover and to analyze the deeper uh, impacts that the Bible had, uh, for example, on scientific thinking, on uh, how legal systems developed, on uh, how literature and uh, language evolved in different uh, cultures. So this is something uh, that we now envisioned uh, to do. But of course, this is something which goes beyond our competencies as biblical scholars. So we need to team up a little bit uh, with experts from adjacent uh, fields. And uh, this first uh, requires also some, uh, yes, some, some periods of planning before we really can embark uh, on this. Well, I think that's very exciting that you're doing another massive project. Um, I think there will definitely be a lot of readers who are interested in the scope of what you're proposing. Um, so hopefully when you've written that, it will also be translated into English and um, you'll maybe come back on the podcast and we can interview you about that next project, whenever that may be. Um, but in the meantime, readers can, listeners, apologies, can read your current book, which in English is titled 
the making of the Bible from first fragments to sacred scripture, which is published by Harvard University Press this year, 2022. Thank you very much, Dr. Conrad Schmid and Dr. Jens Schreuter for coming onto the podcast today. Thank you. It was our Thank pleasure. Thank you so much. Yeah, yeah, our pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you.